Welcome to The Great Unknown, Global Cultural Explorations. I'm Wolf O'Neill. And I'm James Harris. Welcome to this week's episode, and we are going to be talking about mountains. Wolf, why are we talking about mountains this week? Uh, we're talking about mountains because it came up last time and you decided that was going to be our theme, so we're rolling with it. <laughs> also, uh, we love them. We do love mountains. Yeah. We spent a little bit of time in Snowdonia last year, and um, we did Trivan and Kribgok. It was pretty fun, wasn't it? It was very fun. I think we're really interested in mountains because it gives us an opportunity to think about our subject matter on a particularly global scale and more connected with everyone. Since we last spoke to you guys, we went to see the Magic Flute. That was what we did after we recorded last time. And what did you think of the Magic Flute? I thought it was very interesting and enjoyable. Yeah. First opera for you as well? Second, but I don't remember the first. Fair enough. Yeah, my first one as well. And I thought it was really interesting. It was Complicity, uh, who we talked about because Simon McBurney and all this kind of stuff. And really, I thought the way they use technology, the projections on the whole stage... And yeah, that was the most interesting live. part. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I really loved how they brought the musicians and the orchestra up onto the stage and made them an integral part of the show. They didn't pretend the characters could play the musician, like the instruments. They yeah. had the musicians do it, and we just watched that and how the people doing those effects and the sounds and everything were just brought on stage and included in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I was reading up about this afterwards, and apparently that's quite revolutionary for opera. Uh, the stories in opera are really dated and bizarre, and the fact that they ended with a message of wisdom and love was quite impressive. I thought. I thought as much as they got impressive, they managed to get to that point. And yeah, by all accounts, it's quite unusual opera. So I was a bit baffled, having not really knowing the regular opera styles. But yeah, uh, thoroughly enjoyable, and actually set in the mountains as well, which is perfect for launching into this week. This week we are talking about mountains and the sublime. So Wolf's going to be touching on romantic poets. Uh, I'm going to be looking at mountains in science uh, with a little bit of help from Bill Bryson. Then you're looking at Mount Kailash. And I'm going to be talking about mountains in New Zealand, some of the stories. And we've got an interview with an incredible guy called Ellis, who's a Maori guy from New Zealand, who's going to tell us a little bit more about how they resonate in Maori culture. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Shall we begin? Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to have a little new section, Short Idea of the Week. So this week's Short Idea of the Week comes from John Trudell, who is a Native American singer, songwriter and activist, and this is on the topic of natural rights. He says, We must go beyond the arrogance of human rights. We must go beyond the ignorance of civil rights. We must step into the reality of natural rights, because all the natural world has a right to existence. We are only a small part of it. There can be no trade-off. Why did you select to bring that idea to us? I brought that idea because we're going to be talking about the relationship with nature. And we're also talking about indigenous culture this week. So I think it's a really particular uh, resonance with some of the things we might touch on later on. And it's just interesting to see different ways in which the land is viewed in different cultures. Perfect. Thank you, James. Yeah, just I wanted to say on the point that he says the ignorance of civil rights. This is from a Native American person. So that civil rights obviously going to be very important. But I think the point that's being made is just that it goes beyond civil rights. Civil rights is 
it should just be a given. And we need to go beyond that to the next stage of natural rights. Anyway, so yeah, I think that just just to clarify that, because it can sound a little controversial. So uh, when I approached this topic, I decided that I would look at how artists and poets and writers have experienced and depicted mountains. And I came across this really interesting idea about the sublime and the conflictions that artists and poets have in conveying the physical reality of something as well as the emotional impact and resonance of it. So before I talk about the romantics and how they examined the emotional, physical and spiritual impact that mountains had on them, I just wanted to ask you, how do you perceive mountains, James? Well, what do they mean to you? Mountains have been a big part of my life since I was about 15. I, I've always had an attraction to them. And then uh, a friend got me involved in Duke of Edinburgh's award and said, do you want to go walking in the mountains? I said, yes, absolutely. And I haven't really looked back since. And every free time chance I get, I often want to go run away to the mountains. I'm going on Thursday to Scotland just to go hiking and climbing for a bit. It's just, there's something very peaceful about being there. I find myself really happy there, whether I'm by myself or with others. And I've done a lot of solo walking. I just, it's my happy place. Lovely. Yeah. Tell me uh, about yours. What's your, what do they mean to you? I, I have not had anywhere as near as much mountaineering experience as I would like. And I definitely am planning to do lots more. Really enjoyed our trip last year. Want to keep doing it. And I really don't know why I haven't been climbing more mountains up until now. When I think about the natural world, it's really kind of forests and mountains that, that draw me in more than anything else. Mountains are where I kind of want to go. They feel so much more... You feel more connected to them when you've got your hands on them and you're having to... Oh, that sounds creepy. <laughs> you did this last week as well. <laughs> Every week. Well, I'm just going to forget this section. I'm no, just going to move on to the theory. There's something beautiful about just sitting on the top and you're gazing out and you can see these mountains stretching endlessly. And it's a slightly inhospitable landscape for human beings as well. So it's a challenge to be there. And there's, it, a, there's a grandeur to them as well that's does something emotionally to you you have to earn the experience as well yeah 100 percent. when i go to climb a mountain i know that i'm not going to take the cable car or have a get driven up by some vehicle up the easiest route Unless and obviously the train up snowden yeah and i'm obviously not going to discount anyone who does that that's it's not really my aim it's more that i would like to challenge myself and see if i can push myself to the top and then when i get there Soak in the reward. And honestly, it's not just like you only get the reward when you get there. It's the whole process. I love how the view continually improves as you're going. And the landscape itself is is fascinating. So, the theory of the sublime was put forward by Edward Burke in a philosophical, philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful, which was published in 1757, so a little time ago. He defined sublime art as art that refers to a greatness beyond all possibility of calculation, measurement, or imitation. In landscape art, the sublime is exemplified by the work of J. M. W. Turner. His sea storms, yeah, yeah. amazing light. His sea storms and mountain scenes are particularly powerful and feature a key characteristic of romantic art, and that is the notion that a legitimate function of art can be to produce upsetting or disturbing effects. Uh, Particularly his like sea landscapes they aren't pleasing in in a kind of 
a general sense. They aren't perfect or refined, pristine pictures. The content of the image is raw and uncontrollable. Dramatic, yeah. Yes, dramatic. And obviously the the people in the images are seem to be in peril sometimes. Yeah. If you take if you if you look through a lot of his like his uh his ocean paintings, they're usually small boats surrounded by overwhelming natural conditions, dark skies, swirling winds, oceans that they can't manage. So it's a little bit frightening and that's something that comes up quite a lot in the romantics and their understanding of mountains. A certain fear of your own mortality in their presence and the awe of the nature that's much bigger than your mortality and i know that some of them feared climbing some of the mountains or were unable to do it and others had some challenging or even kind of near-death experiences when they were scrambling down some of the mountains and that's kind of informed their opinions as well so the sublime was in some way a counter movement to the picturesque which was an 18th century ascetic style slash category typified by artist and author William Gilpin, and was associated with creating fashionable and agreeable pictures. The picturesque movement had perpetrated and encouraged framing, controlling, and orchestrating nature to serve the viewer's purposes. With mountains, for example, they wanted the mountains to be small and in the distance, and to have smooth sides, soft shapes, so that they looked lovely in in the background and, and they kind of served their purpose, they were never something that was ugly or too close. Or you would never have had a picturesque image that was of just a section of the mountain. You needed the entire mountain. It needed to be in the background, complementing what was going on in the foreground. So then along came the Romantics, who took themselves out into the rugged landscapes of Britain to connect with nature and allow it and the experience of mountaineering to inspire and influence their work. Wordsworth proclaimed himself to be a lifelong mountaineer and concluded his epic work Preludes with an iconic night climb of Snowdon. Which is fun because we did that. Well, not at <laughs> night. It was a bit dark by the end. And I uh, imagine back in, what kind of era is Wordsworth again? 17... So it's going to be the end of the 18th century, end start of the, of the 19th century. century. Sure, so he, you know, climbing up Snowdon then, you're not going to have the same level of footpaths. And I'm sure there's a few, but not not like it is today, I imagine. No train. <laughs> So on this night, he climbs the mountain and the mist rolls in like an ocean and he's unable to see the landscape, but he gains personal insight from the experience while discovering the power of his own imagination. And interestingly, considering he'd already climbed the Alps when he writes Preludes, it's interesting that he finishes Preludes with this climb up Snowdon. I don't I don't fully understand the sublime very well. I, I, it's something that I've come across in photography a lot. When you read the the larger poem, it's really interesting. It starts off when he's at the bottom of the mountain and he's climbing up and it talks about every step that he takes and how he feels as he continues to take those steps, his guys leading them with his dog. And then he talks about how the mist comes in and starts to surround him and how he reaches the top and the enlightenment that he experiences doing this. And I think a key sense that I get from this is that it's about feeling. Rather than objective truth, as you might get in a perfect... Uh, geologically accurate depiction of a mountain in a painting perhaps so a lot of turner's work for example there are no defined shapes right in fact his some of his mountain scenery you are hard pressed to tell its mountains because he is conveying the feeling of light and emotion and impact that such a viewing would have upon you rather than trying to draw the exact shapes and impressions of the physical landscape itself 
So as I continue on, Coleridge was has been nicknamed by some to be the Saint of Fellwalkers due to his travels. I've read that he might have carried out the first ever known traverse of the ridge that runs from Keswick to Gresmere in the Lake District. Oh, yeah. In addition, he pioneered, uh, pioneered the Coldale Horseshoe, the circumcursion of the Lake District, and completed the first recorded ascent of Scarfell. Really? I had no idea, because I've read, I've read some of Coleridge's poetry, and we were taught it in school a little bit, but I had no idea that he was that deep into mountain walking, fell walking. He's one of the earliest and most important British pioneers of both mountaineering and mountaineering literature, a form of writing that has now become a genre in of itself. He wrote a lot of letters and journals. So while Wordsworth was able to convert his mountain experiences into poetry, Coleridge was never really able to convert his experiences in the natural world into poetry. But his writings and journals, which is like essentially his travel writing, about the experience of mountaineering and what he did and where he went, um, has been incredibly influential ever since, even though it wasn't obviously published as work that he perhaps intended it to be. Uh, Keats was also perceived mountaineering and adventures as a crucial preparation for the poetic role, and he'd planned walks through England and Scotland that would prepare him for his intended life. He described the chasms of Ben Nevis as the most tremendous place that he had ever seen, while Coleridge wrote that, Of all earthly things which I have beheld, the view of Scarfell and from Scarfell is the most heart-exciting. Wow, this is really quite fascinating to me, because... Until the Victorian era, when trains come in and holidays and travel is a lot more common, the the pioneering sense of going out into the mountains is very, very different, I, you would imagine, because it's not your average everyday person, person that can go there. So this is a big undertaking to get up to Scotland as well. It's not going to be a quick journey either. That's quite That's quite something. I guess it's probably more the preserve of people with means at this time. It's a sign of privilege for sure. But nonetheless, still quite brave to be going out in these, you know, without, you know, I wouldn't go out in the mountains without map and compass and things, but they certainly wouldn't have OS maps back then. The fact that Coleridge is one of the first people to record his travels in the Lake District is very interesting. They all wrote guides to the Lake District and other areas of natural beauty in the UK, and they used them to kind of teach people how to get out and explore and absorb themselves into the natural world. Coleridge... Uh, has been accused of copyright by taking some other artists' writings about the Alps and using his experiences in like the Lake District, as well as taking some of their ideas to write some of his stuff. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of the the local people. That's the thing. Like, not many people were climbing mountains, and it was the preserve of wealthier people. But I'm sure a lot of the local people were probably quite at the forefront of climbing them, and considering they live there and it's their environment. Yeah, and I think this is a common problem. Obviously, these people put pen to paper and this was their job and this is how they approached it. So as we continue through the movement and we try to explain how they incorporate their experiences and their feelings into their work, uh, Byron frequently placed his heroes on mountain summits. I'll include a painting which I have linked to you from his work uh, of Manfred on the Jungrau mountain in the Alps. In the poem, he is pulled back from the edge just before leaping. Figures on the verge of throwing themselves off of mountains and cliffs to their deaths was a very common trait in romantic art and writing. And a quote from the scene reads, And you, ye crags upon whose extreme edge I stand, and on the torrent's brink beneath, 
Behold the tall pines dwindled as to shrubs in dizziness of distance, when a leap, a stir, a motion, even a breath, would bring my breast upon its rocky bosom's bed to rest for ever. Wherefore do I pause, thou winged and cloud-cleaving minister, whose happy flight is highest into heaven, well mayest thou swoop so near me, how beautiful is all this visible world, how glorious in its action and itself. A common suggestion being that these characters are so close to throwing themselves to their deaths, or intend to, because of the sheer impact that the natural world is having upon them. This spiritual, almost religious experience is occurring as they immerse themselves in nature. Byron and Walter Scott were also significant and played a huge role in influencing the imaginations of climbers and shaping the future of mountaineering literature, that some climbers who would later summit Mont Blanc returned and quoted them as perfect explanations of the experience, even though the men who had written them hadn't. And then when we move on to art, Turner came onto the scene and changed landscape painting forever, elevating it to a status of history paintings at the time. They were obviously the the best of the best. Turner's style was unlike the masters he followed and the majority of his contemporaries, and as his own style developed and matured, he would become a major influence upon Monet, If you look at his work, his fascination with the power of nature and man's seeming insignificance before it is overwhelming, particularly present in the ocean scenes. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you get a chance to go to the National Gallery as well, they've got quite a few turners and they are they're quite something. Nature to a lot of the romantics was a religious experience and many people connected a lot with God when they went into the natural world. It was also a healing experience. And that's something that's carried on this existed for forever. It still impacts us now. Just the two of us in this room still feel the healing impact of taking ourselves into nature. Yeah, getting outside, fresh air and all that. It's a kind of a bit of a cliche, but actually, the more you do it, it really does have a positive impact, I think. And it's a classic trend in literature and films when the people who are working in the cities have to retire to the countryside to kind of reset. Uh, British Victorian literature has always got a country pile somewhere and that's where it's all much more peaceful rather than the chaos of London. Indeed. Uh, and essentially, just to, to sum up, is that the truths of nature are contrasted with the conventionalised second-hand perceptions of landscape painters from before Turner. The system of the old masters may be sublime and affecting and ideal and intellectual, and a great deal more, but that Turner's work is the closest and most studied approach to the truth of what the materials of art admit. The idea that they were able to truly capture the feeling of being in the natural world. I'm going to post a load of images of really great and interesting artwork that we've come across, and essentially mountains were at the very core of the romantic experience. They physically were exploring mountains and mountaineering, and that was giving them the informed understanding from which they wrote. Some of them more than others, but it was was heavily influential throughout the entire movement, and then mountains continued to have a role in everything that they they did, really. We'll definitely put those on Instagram, Facebook, that kind of thing, and it'd be really interesting to get your feedback as well, and if anyone wants to send in paintings that particularly resonated with them about the feeling of a particular landscape that they love. Uh, It doesn't have to be from a romantic era. This can be anything. I'd be really interested to see what other people think of. There's there's one that always comes to mind for me, which is a romantic one, which is by, I'm going to get this wrong, Caspar David Friedrich and The Wonder Above the Sea of Fog. 
for me that's always stuck in my head there's something really magical about that when you because that feeling of being above the clouds it's really quite a special feeling and you're not in a regular environment it's very much an emotional environment as well i think that's that has a big impact on on your feelings is there the a particular climb that has given you that experience most profoundly the the one that resonates most with me was when i climbed it's called i'm going to pronounce this terribly ankylich in um it's near newtonmore in the highlands there's a couple and i did it in february and it was thick snow. I'd already bailed out of doing this long distance walk that I planned to do because it was so bloody cold and my tent was three inches under snow when I woke up the first morning. So I went and had whiskey instead and decided to do day walks. And Ankylik was just, it's not the most spectacular mountain, but it's beautiful. There's nobody there. And in the snow, it was spectacular. And I was way out of my depth and it was magical because because the snow was so deep. I wasn't sure if I was walking on firm ground all the time. The paths weren't visible. And when I got to the top, it was blowing harder than I've... A hoolie. It was blowing a hoolie. Um, and I could barely stand up straight. It was overwhelming. And I felt so in awe of the landscape. Was it windier than when we got to the top of uh, Trifan? Oh, yeah, it was... That was pretty windy. That was really windy. I mean, it's on that level, but a little bit more. And because it was snowy and the biting cold of the wind in my face, but I was so thrilled to to reach the top and to find that point. And it's like you set yourself that goal and you get there. And then I remember coming down. So I passed some other people who'd started the walk and they said, oh, they turned back because they didn't do it. So I was the only person who did it that day. And it was definitely foolish because my feet were soaked and... I was not prepared enough for the snow. But I walked back down the mountain. And as I found where I was again, and I knew I knew that this was on the home stretch, I put in my headphones and I listened to uh, Eddie Vedder, the soundtrack from um, Into the Wild. And I was just singing well, along. obviously I approve. <laughs> of course, it's a great film. I was just singing along to myself as I was walking down. And I was just so happy, just the feeling of that overwhelming awe and being almost i was really intimidated by the the nature and the scenery the the danger basically and how isolated i was and to have experienced that it's a beautiful thing to do with your day and to come back after that you just feel incredible it was something else i've got beautiful pictures of the snowdrifts which were 10 foot deep in places because they just sort of gathered on the side it was stunning just I'll, I'll post a picture on our uh, Facebook, Instagram, or something like that as well. I'm jealous. I think I've seen some of the good pictures from when up there. Yeah, yeah. I'll 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 put something up. Um. That's reminded me of a story which is not anywhere near as inspiring. But when I was in Vermont and we were at one of the ski resorts at the base of the mountains, I decided I was going to ski down the mountain, which is obviously a terrible idea. <laughs> I pretty you much skied before. Um, a long time ago. So I just did a couple of runs on like a practice slope. They're like intermediate stuff was all closed because it was the, an odd time right at the start of the season so it was only the harder stuff so i went up on the ski lift but the main part of the story is i fell off the ski lift right at the beginning <laughs> so you obviously like you ski on and then you kind of stand still and then the ski lift Take kind you. of hits you and then you sit on it but i wasn't <laughs> quite ready and i rushed out too like I'd, I'd waited too long and then i rushed out and then it just hit me in the bum and knocked me off and i fell like into this giant snowbank and they have to stop the lift 
<laughs> and then help me back out. And then I took my skis on and then get on. And it was so cold. I can still feel the I like crashing into these ice walls on the top of this mountain and then walking most of my way down. Uh, it was, it was terrible, but you know, it, the thing that was most interesting about that was because I felt unprepared. The mountain was scary. Yeah. Like I felt. But there were kids going down there who were. Oh yeah. Fine. They, were, they were showing me off, but I genuinely felt like the coldness. It was so cold, like minus 20. The, the temperature and the, the, the danger I felt up there. Was, was very real, very interesting. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Uh, the only time I've been snowboarding and skiing, I went to Norway and I had a friend staying in Oslo. So, uh, and I had a great time actually. It was, it was awesome. But then I went cross country skiing, which is the stupidest thing I've ever done. Like skiing uphill. I'd never skied downhill before. And I put my skis on at the train station and immediately started sliding backwards <laughs> and I ended up. Uh, like jammed between the bank and this fence of the train station and so people had to help me out of that as well and it Incredible. took me like an entire day to 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 ski a few kilometers cross country but then we were in this beautiful hut in the woods in norway and it was a sauna in the hut did a naked snow dive it was bliss it was amazing definitely worth it but my friends had to put up with me quite a lot a lot of swearing and my butt hurt for about a month afterwards just from the amount of times i'd fallen over on it <laughs> let's move on so what's the topic that you have for us well so you were looking at mountains and art and culture oh, i actually wanted to ask you where, where did your interest in the romantics come from is i'm glad you ended up talking about art and culture because uh, when we started talking about mountains it was the science that jumped to my mind so i want to talk a little bit about science and mountains because there's particular one a couple of little stories about mountains and the role that they've played in human discovery in science that's absolutely amazed me. And actually, the book that I'm going to recommend to, to you and to anybody is Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. And it's incredible. If I like talking of school, that would have done for me for science, for all the science education that I've ever needed. And it's brilliant. It's a really entertaining book. And that's either a great recommendation or a shocking revelation about your school teaching <laughs> yeah i think science never really got me at school for some reason but actually as i've gotten older i've really become amazed by particularly things like astrophysics and quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe but then reading this book and there's a great audio book of it as well i've become really interested in geology and geography and i'm going to sound like an absolute nerd but i'm fine with that because it's the book's brilliant and and the people who are discovering this kind of stuff, who are doing geological experiments around about the same time as the Romantics, are the ones that I'm going to refer to. So actually, before I start, I want to ask you a question. How much do you think the Earth weighs? I don't, I don't even think I know the... I don't even think I know what I would measure it in. Is this is it like, is that like a kiloton? Is, that, <laughs> is there a giloton? Like, what do I... Someone can tell us if if you know of what a greater measurement than ton is when you're like gigaton or yeah, megaton. Yeah, that's probably a thing. Because the the number you're going to quote to me has got to be ludicrous, like twelve digits. Uh, How I do you would, reckon that human beings have worked? I'd ask someone uh, more intelligent than me to tell me the answer. 
And that's exactly why I've got this book, because this is all the knowledge of people who are far more intelligent than me. So I'm going to try and tell you a little story about how... Well, is it is it based upon astrophysics, like a calculation of the Earth's mass within space? Actually, and how we've figured out the mass of different things in space is entirely due to mountains and understanding our own small environments on Earth, which is really interesting, I think, the way that we've been able to take these micro-investigations and put them on a massive astro-level. Okay, so I'm going to read a passage from the book, but I'm just going to preface it but with a little bit of information also comes from the book. Isaac Newton had published Principia, in which he details the universal law of gravitation. It's the law of gravity, which is fundamental to everything in physics. Uh, it's an absolute masterwork. It's one of humanity's probably greatest achievements. I would never attempt to read it, so I'm quite glad to have the knowledge summarised. Something else conjectured by Newton in the Principia was that a plumb line hung near a mountain would incline very slightly towards the mountain, affected by the mountain's gravitational mass as well as the Earth's. This was more than a curious fact. If you measured the deflection accurately and worked out the mass of the mountain, you could calculate the universal gravitational constant, the basic value of gravity, known as g, and along with it the mass of the Earth. In 1772, at Neville Maskelyne, the Astronomer Royal's behest, Charles Mason accepted the commission to find a suitable mountain for the gravitational deflection experiment, at length reporting back that the mountain they needed was in the central Scottish Highlands, just above Loch Tay, and was called Shehalion. With Mason refusing to survey the mountain, the job fell to Maskelyne. So for four months in the summer of 1774, Maskelyne lived in a tent in a remote Scottish glen and spent his days directing a team of surveyors who took hundreds of measurements from every possible position. To find the mass of the mountain from all these numbers required a great deal of tedious calculating, for which a mathematician named Charles Hutton was engaged. The surveyors had covered a map with scores of figures, each marking an elevation at some point on or around the mountain. It was essentially just a confusing mass of numbers, but Hutton noticed that if he used a pencil to connect points of equal height, it all became much more orderly. Indeed, one could instantly get a sense of the overall shape and slope of the mountain. He had invented contour lines. Extrapolating from his Shehalian measurements... Hutton calculated the mass of the Earth at 5,000 million million tonnes, from which could reasonably be deduced the masses of all other major bodies in the solar system, including the Sun. So from this one experiment, we learn the masses of the Earth, the Sun, the Moon, the other planets and their moons, and got contour lines into the bargain. Not bad for a summer's work. Impressive. So, just to round that off. In 1797, a man named Henry Cavendish then did this on a much smaller scale, using instruments from the comfort of his own home. He would have all these really precise instruments with different objects of different masses that he would measure their deflection against them because of the gravity effect on them. So every, everything in the universe has gravity. You and I have gravity. And as we're sitting here, the microphones, each other, the walls, we're all having a gravitational effect on each other, just a really, really small one. If you think about it, when you pick something off the floor, you are overcoming the entire force of the Earth's gravity. So gravity is a really strange force because it keeps the planets in motion, but it also is really quite weak in many ways. Cavendish calculated it the weight of the Earth to 6 billion trillion metric tons, only 20% more than Hutton's calculations. The current best estimate today for the Earth's weight is 5.9725 billion trillion tons, a difference of only about 1% from Cavendish's finding. 
Interestingly, all of this nearly confirmed estimates made by Newton 110 years before Cavendish without any experimental evidence at all. Damn. So there you go. So that's the story of how we figured out the weight of the Earth. I mean, can't just put it on a scale. For me, like that was amazing that this that these guys basically in the same kind of era as the the painters and the poets were walking up these mountains. And the mountains, you know, there can't have been as many people as there are today, but by the sounds of it, in the 1700s, the mountains must have been awash with like posh boys with just either writing or conducting bizarre experiments. Well, what's really interesting is the romantics were often fighting against... So there are generalizations to them. So obviously, whatever I say, there's going to be examples where that's not true. And they did embrace science. But while the science was improving and we were being able to quantify and explain mountains, the romantics were essentially trying to remind people of the 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 natural power and beauty and not forget that by turning them into quantifiable calculations the idea that while science is progressing so you, you can learn exactly what a mountain is not to forget what a mountain is if that makes sense that's interesting that the two ideas are competing against each other and for me the science just adds to more to the mystique of mountains because they are such unique formations in the landscape that that becomes emotional, yes, but I think they are fascinating in terms of the record of, of human history and it's things like glaciers and all these kind of things which we've learnt about the whole of human history through ge- geographical and geological formations and I find that absolutely mind-blowing. For me, if, if you're interested in science at all, that book is just, like, go and read it and there are so many amazing stories in it. Get the audio book, listen to it on a long drive, it's incredible uh, so i think when we go to scotland later in the week I might get his book about traveling around britain whenever i'm out in the mountains i think that people were looking at those going hmm i wonder if i can figure out how much this weighs <laughs> i'm like i would have no idea how to measure a mountain or weigh it but that's it's knowledge way beyond me but that's f- incredible to know that's how human beings have figured things out no very interesting thank you my pleasure we've talked about mountains as a a cultural context and our scientific context we haven't even really planned this to do it this way but actually you're telling me that you're going to touch on mount kailash which has quite a lot of religious significance as well which would be which would be really interesting and i know virtually nothing about mount kailash so um, were you aware of mount kailash before i mentioned it very vaguely just i know of the name but i don't know really know anything about it okay so mount kailash is in china in located in the Himalayas in kind of western Tibet. And it sits at around the summit, that is, 6,638 metres above sea level. Compared to Everest, which is about 8,500, something like that. Uh, yeah. It sits near the source of four of the biggest and most significant rivers in China. They all uh, Their sources are all within 100 kilometres of the mountain. Wow. And then they obviously travel for like... I think some of them go into India and some of them go all the way across China and out into the ocean. It's pretty impressive. And Mount Kailash is known as the navel of the universe. This holy region is central to four distinct religious traditions. Hinduism, Tibetan Buddhism, Jainism, and Bon, the indigenous pre-Buddhist Tibetan spiritual system. Bon, B-O-N. I never heard of it. I think they're called Bon Po. Okay. It's an important site for pilgrimage for all of these religions. The cosmologies and origin myths of these religions speak of Kailash as the mythical Mount Meru, which is the centre of all physical, metaphysical, and spiritual universes. 
It's a it's a pillar of the universe. And from my readings, um, the assumption I get is that Mount Kailash has been a central focus of a number of civilizations for longer than we can trace back. In the earliest records of these religious texts and the lineage that they possess, Mount Kailash has always been a focal point of their belief systems. So it, you would assume that it goes back further than we even have records for. Yeah. Into ancient civilizations that we no longer have trace of. It's mentioned heavily, uh, well, there's a, there's a section in the Hindu epic, the Ramayana, which was written in approximately the 5th century BCE, when the demonic king Ravana attacks Shiva's home and tries to shake them from the mountaintop, which I thought was really interesting that it would be so present. I've also gathered that Mount Kailash has this unique distinction of being one of, if not the most venerated holy places in the world, while simultaneously being the least visited. It's seen by no more than a few thousand pilgrims per year. Seen? That's not even summited. You can't... I don't believe it's ever been summited. I don't think you can... You're not allowed to go there and summit the mountain. Oh, so it would be possible, but you just... I, I think it must be possible, but because it's been so religiously significant that no one climbs it... And I think it's been like that for centuries and centuries. Just no one has ever climbed it. Yeah. And I don't even think you. I don't even think you would, because the government wouldn't allow you. But I just don't think people would do that anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I don't believe it's been summited. But because of where it is, it's the there's quite a poor road network out there, and there hasn't been an airport until fairly recently that was even nearby. So, in order to travel all the way out there to this kind of western portion of Tibet, it was was quite hard to visit. And then I also get the impression that perhaps the Chinese government is physically limiting the number of pilgrimages per year. So, it's only maybe around a thousand people who are allowed to go and carry out a a religious pilgrimage. Is that to sort of limit the impact on the mountain? It doesn't seem to be. I'll I'll come to that a little bit later. Interesting. But essentially, of all the pilgrimages you can do on Earth, it's one of the hardest to do because of its location. Mm. So, as I've kind of already mentioned, Hindus believe that Mount Kailash is the is the home of Lord Shiva, who is one of the three, the Shiva, the three Brahma main ones, and Vishnu. Yeah. Yes. According to legend, um, the immortal Shiva lives atop Mount Kailash with his wife Parvati. Um, for a Hindu to make the arduous pilgrimage to Kailash and travel to Shiva's abode, it's to kind of release them from the clutches of ignorance and delusion. The pilgrimage trail is, I think it's 53 kilometers in a circuit, and it's known as the Kailash Parikrama. Okay. So what, you go all the way around the peak? You, I think you go, I don't know, maybe, or around the base? Around the base. Well, yeah, you, you don't summit it, but some you sort of do a circumference of the mountain. Yeah, there's a specific trail that's kind of mapped out and it has markers, statues, uh, religious buildings all around it and you travel around it. And I will get to it, but one group of, one religion goes one way around, the other one goes the other. Oh, really? Yes. So, uh. It's often the, the way of religion, isn't it? The Jains call the mountain Astapada, forgive me, and believe it to be the place where Rishaba, the first of the 24 Turk Thankaras, attained liberation and nirvana. So they're essentially their religious leader it attained nirvana on this mountain while the followers of bon call the mountain tice or tease t-i-s-e 
and believe it to be the seat of uh, this sky goddess, who is Sipaiman. I'm really enjoying you trying to I pronounce know, things. It's very hard. Way out of your league, and somebody is gonna gonna write in and be like, "You are terrible." Yep, most I'm definitely. Correct us, though. I'm more than happy to learn. And th- I believe that in uh, in the the myths of the Bompo religion, there was this legendary battle that took place in the 12th century, which was a, a battle between these sorcerers, the Buddhist sage and the Bon shaman. The result of this battle is that the the shaman of the Bonpo is defeated by the Buddhist sage, which is why the primary religion of Tibet is altered and becomes permanently established as the Buddhist one. That's a story that right. that they tell to explain how their religion was replaced. So are they are they quite closely related though? Do they do they have elements of each other in Tibet? Do you think? I honestly don't know. Okay. But the Bonpo pilgrims walk counterclockwise around the mountain. Right. So I thought that was interesting. Um, while the Buddha is believed to have magically visited Kailash in the 5th century, the religion of Buddhism only entered Tibet in the 7th century. Tibetan Buddhists call the mountain Kangrimposh and regard it as the dwelling place of Dem- Demchog and his consort. Um, there are various hills that arise near there, which are the homes of the, the Bodhisattvas as well. So essentially what's what's truly fascinating about this is that you have four separate religions and they have four separate stories about this one mountain and they all coexist at the same time and believe their own stories. So to one religion, Shiva's on the top. To another, it's a different sky goddess. And I think that's absolutely remarkable. I think the reason it can be the centre of so many religions is because of the politics and the connections that have been taking place between India and Nepal and China and Tibet, and how this mountain, which is so large, has been a central influence upon all of these people surrounded. You can study Mount Fuji, for example, and that will have a religious significance upon one group of people. Yeah, Mont Blanc upon another one or two, maybe, but to, to have four separate religions consider this to be the most sacred mountain in the world the center of the universe itself is truly remarkable yeah so and tibet's a really interesting thing as well so i've been to ladakh which is an area in kashmir in india uh, which is now where a huge amount of the tibetan population lives in exile because china obviously doesn't recognize tibet and tibet is not officially a country at the moment because China claims it and there's a really strong Tibetan identity in that part of India which is really fascinating as well what I was going to say was to that point uh, I've been to Nepal as well and in Nepal it's really interesting it kind of goes south even though it's a very east-west country their understanding of it goes south to north so on the south you have flat plains that sort of meld into India then you have the hill district and then you have the mountains and the mountains are the most revered area of the country. It's also some of the hardest areas to live in, but people often live there are often viewed as like higher caste because Interesting. it's yeah, really complicated, but so higher caste, but often in worse situations because obviously the terrain is more inhospitable. Huh. Well, thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and just, just on your kind of point of how, People. Well, that's fascinating, and it's really interesting that you've you've been to Nepal and you visited India and you've seen more of this landscape oh, yourself. And it's then, quite something. It's 
the world's highest airport, I think, is at Leh, which is in the Indian area, um, Ladakh. And yeah, you have to sort of weave around mountains to land. It's absolutely crazy and just spectacular. And you're amazed that this is, this is where people live. It's, it's glorious. So you'll, you'll probably have a little first hand, uh, idea about what I'm going to next mention, which is, it's been really interesting to talk about the religious significance of this mountain, but if we're talking about the the modern day, it seems to be from my readings that the current political climate is having an impact upon religious pilgrimages, mm. and that China's influence is to generally repress the religious and cultural expression of anyone who is not recognized by the Chinese, so obviously particularly Tibet. The Chinese government is threatening both the ability of religious practitioners to access the important pilgrimage sites, as well as it's not really preserving the sacred locations. And they've destroyed, over the years, they've destroyed a lot of religious buildings. They've ripped down statues while people are trying to prevent them from being destroyed, and they've torn them to the ground and damaged parts of this trail that they walk on their pilgrimage, as well as the fact that they refuse to rec- to accept applications to carry out the pilgrimage. Oh, really? Mm. So since the beginning of Chinese rule in Tibet, access to the mountain for pilgrims from all four religious traditions has been severely restricted. China has recently agreed to increase the number of pilgrims from India being allowed to visit Kailash, but the allotted numbers still do not meet the demand of the Indian population. Chinese rule has inhibited the practice of religious rituals by Tibetan Buddhists because they are perceived as politically dissident. So Tibetan Buddhists are really not allowed to express their own religion. And I think if they want to go to the religious sites, Tibetan Buddhists are made to sign a declaration that denounces the Dalai Lama as a a political authority and forcing themselves to recognise the unity of China and Tibet. That's a brutal game to play because, yeah, if if that's your most important pilgrimage site, to then be denied that or choose to reject the person who is actually probably trying to campaign most for your religious freedoms. That's And this integration of political and religious issues is causing a, a major reduction in the amount of pilgrimages that can happen. Uh, restrictions on pilgrimages have also had a major effect on Hindus. The Chinese government has been refusing to grant visas to Hindus from India for the traditional summer pilgrimage to the home of Lord Shiva. These restrictions are said to be because of a political reason, a result of protests in Tibet. So, obviously, this could be a few years old that this happened, and maybe it's improving, but I think we know from the information that that we receive and what we are aware of at the time that it's fairly likely that they would be putting restrictions upon them. It's weird, isn't it? Just, I find it frustrating how, like, I'm not a big kind of fan of organised religion on the whole, and often organised religions into kind of saying, oh, this is the way we do things and other religions are bad. But then then politically, like, politics does the same thing half the time. It says to restrict people on the basis their religion is wrong. But then some religions then, if they become very tied into the political culture of a country or an area then they become restrictive and it's and religion is then used to restrict other things which is really it's a really baffling and hard line to walk um, like you know sultan of brunei is you know yes. all this kind of stuff it's 
If yeah. I haven't already told you as well, I'll tell you later about how China has kidnapped the the follower to the Dalai Lama so that when the Dalai Lama dies, his role oh is God. removed forever or is owned by the Chinese. Their new leader will be Chinese. That's quite scary. It's crazy. Yeah, that's that's persecution. Um, I think the the one fact that no one has scaled the mountain and no one continues to try, considering that as a human race we want to do everything and have done everything, be the first to do everything, and so many religious groups or cultures, entire civilizations, have been ignored and eradicated so that others can do what they want. It's really impressive, still, even with the issues that are happening with limiting people having pilgrimages, that no one is scaling this mountain because it is too religiously significant to so many people. Yeah, the idea that there's a part of the Earth that human beings haven't actually been is quite something... Obviously, I could be wrong. Maybe people have gone up there, but I think for such a long time they just haven't, and you you wouldn't you wouldn't climb it. So it's been left alone, protected almost. And I think that's incredible. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's um, let's have a little breather for a moment. And what I want to do is we're going to do another new feature this week, which is the sound of the week. And what we actually want to do in the future is we, because of this format of sound, I love the idea that, you know, sound can mean a lot of different things. And it's not just, you know, listening to other people talk, but, you know, talking about romantics, I like the emotions that sound can make. So when you're listening to this, uh, we've talked a lot and I just want to give you a minute, whatever you're doing, whether you're on the train to work, whether you're in the car, if you're just at home, whatever you're doing. I want to just give you a chance to just have a little think. So the first one that I've got for you is the sound of the sea lapping on a rocky shoreline. Just take yourself to the place and whatever whatever coastline you've been to, if, you, if you've been to the sea and somewhere that means something to you and just close your eyes and think of that and just enjoy the, the calm and the peace of this particular sound. So you have the distant boom of the waves out in the sea and then you hear water just lapping over the rocks. And for me, that's just a really peaceful, peaceful place to be. Splash, splash, I was taking a bath. (laughs) So what do we have next? When we first started talking about mountains, the first thing that came to my mind was New Zealand because I've spent a bit of time there and the, the stories of the mountains there are really beautiful. And I wanted to share with you the story of... Uh, Mount Taranaki which is a beautiful mountain and it's a volcano on its own on the west of the North Island 
absolutely incredible. Uh, we'll put up another picture of that as well. And if you look at it from an aerial view, it's almost perfectly circular. And there's this almost perfectly circular line of trees around it as well. It's absolutely glorious. And it's still an active volcano. But uh, yeah, you can you can walk up it a fair way. But it's also quite like a got quite a significance in Maori culture. So the story goes that on the North Island of New Zealand, there's this big central plateau, and all the mountains were living there together. And you have uh, Tongariro, Ruapehu, uh, Narahui, and Taranaki. Tongariro and Taranaki are in love with this beautiful other mountain called Pihanga, which is nearby. And they end up having this massive fight. And that's why the landscape is so kind of dramatic there, because it's two mountains fighting, basically. And they're, they're both in love with her and they're fighting for her love. And eventually Tongariro defeats Taranaki and he's kind of banished across the to the west of the North Island. And there's a river that runs between the two now, the, the Wanganui River, which is said to be, in some stories, is said to be his trail of tears. And then every time that the summit of Taranaki is hidden in cloud, there's the, it's saying that he's hiding his face because he's so upset and angry. And just and so Taranaki is this kind of quite uh, lonely mountain. But it's an amazing story. And, and everywhere you go in New Zealand, you have these kind of stories where the, the landscape means something and it has a personality and a history. And I was thinking about this and then... I'm trying to explain this to you and my pronunciation is also terrible and I was thinking I can't I can't do this justice so I'm going to try and get hold of somebody who can and luckily I've got a friend in New Zealand called Ellis who was kind enough to have a chat with me the other morning so we had a little little chat the other morning which we're going to play for you now and Ellis is going to be far better at explaining Maori culture and the relationship with the landscape and mountains than I am so without further ado let me pass you over to somebody who knows a lot more than I do. Too good, too good, Jane. So, um, you know, a couple of things come to mind straight away, and I'll start with the second thing. There was this, this thing came up, oh, it was a couple of years ago now, and it was an international organisation, and they were trying to get people to come and do internships in New Zealand, right? Yeah, yeah. And and one thing that that I that I always remember this guy said. It wasn't to me. It was kind of a, it was a bit of a yeah, a bit like this, a bit of a podcast generally that he was putting out to applicants from all over the world. And he said, "New Zealand is the only country that I know of that the land has human status." That's that's what he said, and and that is actually. The key, I, I found it, I, I won't forget it because it was, this was a foreigner saying this about, that's how he frames our relationship with the land here. And certainly from a Māori perspective, but generally we can talk about this later. We're in a real sense of, of evolution in New Zealand, James, with non-Māori now very much wanting to kind of treat the environment and people um, with that same kind of mindset. And so, you know, the, the core thing, so leading on from that, for me, the core thing that New Zealand has, um, and certainly Māori has, sorry, is that the land is not an innate object. It's, it's in our genealogy, or whakapapa, in our genealogy, we actually, we're actually descend from the land. 
So it's part of in our creation story. You have our ultimate creator who went through, uh, first of all, the eel stages, and then he created what they called tekore. And in tekore, was they, in tekore means nothingness or the void, but think about it as his workshop. And in his workshop, he created all the elements that we need to have this physical earth that we live in now. And so, so that's, so you go from me back to Kupe, that's the discoverer of Aotearoa, Kupe back through his whakapapa to, um, to Tāne Mahuta and, and then Ahine Ahuani, sorry. And then, then from there, there was just the gods. And then from there, back there was when Eeyore created the earth element. And then from there, it goes back to him. So do you get the point I'm trying, I'm just trying to illustrate to you the actual physical way that in the Māori belief system, we're actually we're actually part of the land. We descend from the land rather than than not. You could almost look at it like a, a family tree, I guess. And then, yeah. and then, so you'd yeah, find exactly. yourself in that family tree, but you'd also yeah. find like the natural elements within the family tree as well. That's right. So you got the same parents, Rangi and Papa, and then the seven main children who are the guardians of all of these elements that we can see around us now. So you've got. Tāni Māui, the god of the forest. Tūmātauinga, the god of man, mankind. Uh, Tangaro, god of the sea. Tāwhiri a god of the winds. Rua Aimoko, the god of volcanoes. Because he was still inside his mum's tummy, so that's why he's under the ground. So he's earthquakes and volcanoes. Then you've got Rongo, the god of peace. He is also the god of um, cultivated foods. And then Rongo Matani, who's the god of uncultivated foods. So no matter where you go in this physical realm, um, you're in one of the, one of those spaces under the under the protection, if you want to call it, of of one of those gods. And then also when you think about Tumatoing and being the god of man, he's also the god of war, and Rongomatani is the god of peace. So even in your own mind, you're actually either under one of those two domains at any given time itself. So that's so where you can sort of see how we're connected to them in a lot of ways. So in that system, does it matter if you're, if you're Māori or, or is it yeah. everybody that's a part of that system for you? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. For, for me, that, that's the same the world over because that is my belief system, i.e. I'm Māori, and that's the belief system that I choose to view the world from. So... No matter where I go to, so if I've been like, you know, to Sweden or wherever, and Sweden's a good one because I really studied Sweden when I was there. So I, I very much, um, I don't know, this is going to sound thing, James, but I'm very much feeling the energy of the land where I go to. And, and for example, Sweden is a very different energy, energetically than what New Zealand is. They are, they're very much a rock country. It's very solid. There's not much dirt. There's only a small layer of dirt above rock, really. And that changes the essence of, for me anyway, I found the essence of the country, but also the essence of the people. Whereas here, we're very, um, I kind of feel it's a, it's, it's a very charged, it's a very charged place, New Zealand. Well, that's exactly what I felt as well, being there. And that's yeah. why I'm so interested in it, because I think, like I don't, I don't know if I've kind of felt that anywhere else that, that or I've yeah. been able to kind of put it into the terms that that Maori culture puts it in terms of, 
I, when I when I think of New Zealand, I I also think of the ability to be able to express that feeling as well, which for me is <laughs> is really beautiful. I, I was just going to say so. When you that feeling of what you've just talked about, so when you were in New Zealand, did you feel that like the whole country had that feeling of freedom to express their connection to the place? Is that what you're saying to me? I Whereas did. in other countries, you haven't really been able, you haven't really felt that. The thing that really amazed me, particularly then going to Australia afterwards, um, and for example, in Australia, they've got you know, an incredible um, you know indigenous culture, but they, it's not really. Yeah. It's, it's not really a part of everyday life, whereas in New Zealand, I felt like everybody was really, it, it really mattered to everybody, no matter kind of where your your yeah. history is from, whether you're Pākehā or Māori or anything like that, you know, yeah. it's, um, it was everybody yeah. there, and that's that's yeah. special, I think, and I think, and I think it's a really healthy kind of relationship with landscape yeah, and yeah, yeah. with with human I beings. Uh, yeah. I reckon that um, I'd, I'd, it'd be interesting to. Because my suspicion would be that if you if you went, well, no matter what country you went to, if you were sought out the indigenous kind of peoples and rituals, and I and I sent on the rituals because, like, if you're doing if you because in a lot of places, and I think of say America or Canada, it's not really mainstream. But if you can get involved in some of their kind of ritual stuff then you would then you would see their version of the same stuff that we're talking about it's been really interesting james since the we changed government with um with uh, jacinda ardern and labor coming in and i still remember it because i don't know when there was a couple of years ago now eh? because i've got a job and i wouldn't have this job i've got now if jacinda ardern hadn't become the prime minister because and, I, and i'm going to quote i'm going to give you the so what happened was, James, they, the, there was the National Party and the Labour Party, right? The two main parties. Yeah. yeah. National Party had been in for something like 12 years. And they were a very a typical um, economy-driven party. You know, they they had taken us economically. We'd been doing quite well for a number of years. And so, therefore, you get the situation of people that have got money are like, Okay, this is a government that's going to uh, nurture us and develop us, i.e. businessmen and all of those kind of things. Therefore, let's keep voting for them. And so that's that's kind of why they keep going. But meanwhile, along that road, so you had the rich getting richer, basically, and you had the poor getting poorer in New Zealand. And along that, there was a little bit of an under an underthrow toe of people were starting, you know, the poor were getting poorer. And there, there was this, this demograph that, for a long, long time, nobody had really kind of thought about too much. There were some pretty sort of things starting to rear up a little bit that, that were really like third world, you know, in terms of health stats and stuff. So people started kind of developing, I guess, a little bit of a conscious around that. And then what happened was the, the Labour Prime Minister stood down and unexpectedly and promoted Jacinda Ardern because they knew that, that there was going to be no hope with him in it. So he promoted her. Nobody thought that she. What, any, nobody really thought too much about it. But just her being her, she's very charismatic, very young, mm. female, very um, socially conscious. So she really tapped the nerve on a kind of grand swell that was there, but nobody had really been able to kind of ignite it. And so she pulled it out. And I still remember. So what happened was the National Party on the day of the votes actually got more votes than the Labour Party by a long way. 
So there were two parties, the Greens and New Zealand First, that were in a position, whoever, and well, Labor needed the Greens, and they're kind of aligned with the Green Party, like conservationists, and so they were going to jump in with them. They were never going to go with National. And so then it's left the New Zealand First Party, who was kind of a little bit of both. And he, the, the Prime Minister, the leader of that party has been around forever, mate. Since yeah, the I 90s. remember him. What, what was his name again? Yeah, Winston Winston Peters. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, he's a bit of a character. So, yeah, he is a character. Yeah, and, and so New Zealand were, were hung for about two weeks, I think it was. Nobody knew what he was going to do, but everybody thought he would go with National because they were, you know, they were giving him all the sweet treats, saying you'll be this and you'll be that, you can come in, you know. And of course, um, Labour were too, but everybody just thought him being home, he would go with them. And I still remember his speech when he came out. He came out and he said, he said, uh, and I quote, he said, in New Zealand, he said, there are a lot of people who have come to view money as a foe rather than a friend. And they're not all wrong. That that was the quote that he said. And so then he announced he was going to go with um, Labour. Then, then, of course, here we are two years later, and our economy is, I don't know the stats, but our economy is still, well, it's not all doom and gloom. We're still doing okay, you know? So, but but what it's allowed, James, is it's allowed those of us that, and particularly not so much me, but mainstream New Zealand who had a bit of a social conscious, it's allowed them to step forward and under that banner and go, yes, let's be a bit more caring about what we do in New Zealand. And so as an example, they've put a lot of lot of money into, so I work in the social services now, James. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, so I run a, I run a program for young young people that come from that demographic where they've got nothing, half of my kids don't even, they, you know, they're 10, 14 and they can't even read or write, mate, because they, they don't go to school. You know, they're that sort of kids, you know. But I can guarantee you if 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 uh, National got in, because it was funding that just came up, this guy's shoulder tapped me and here I am, just after they got in, within six months of them getting in. Incredible. And so, and these are the sorts of things that's happened all throughout the country. So we're on this real, what I call the evolution, you know, we're all, like what you said before, we're already wanting to be quite au fait with nature and the environment and the way we treat people, whether we're a Māori or Pākehā, that was just the vibe of New Zealanders. Yeah. And um, But now it's it's kind of even accelerated even more. But I just think it's really nice that the people with money are still doing all right and they're still going to make money, but yet... There's, you know, I get to do what I get to do, mate, in my energy now, and that's got to be a good thing for, well, I won't say got to be a good thing, but I do my best to, to help those that haven't got whatever some other people have, you know? And that's really beautiful to hear as well, because, you know, that's like the whole thing about the caring for not just the land, but the people as well. I wish it was the case in a lot more places, and that's always what I would I would hope the case to be more like in... Um, yeah, I think that's my yeah, my relationship with the land that I live in and the people that are around me is to to take care of it as best as possible and uh, and it's nice to hear that that politically that actually has a kind of impact as well and it's been able to it's nice to hear of a direct yeah kind of response to that and it's enabled you to yeah. actually do what you do now. I think too that the other thing with mountains is that and this is one of what my mentors who's passed away now said one time he said they're the you know they're the highest points of connectivity 
to that space of whatever that is that's above us. Therefore, that's why there's such a powerful connection point. Yeah, well, yeah. say the Vikings, you know, as opposed to the, you know, saying Māori's are really, Māori culture's really cool. And I said, well, the Viking culture was amazing. You know, you guys are incredible. And it's just like, oh, no, no, no. And so I was very curious about it, you know, very curious about Sweden, why they sweep it under the guy. No, I said, how did, how did the, the, the sort of Viking belief system, you know, Odin and Thor and Valhalla and all of that phase out? And then the religion gained a real, real stronghold, you know? Mm. And he said, well, he said, what they did, he said, when Christian, when they, when they were Christians arrived in force, he said, they systematically went through the country and they, all of the Viking strongholds that were on top of mountains and hills, they basically knocked them down and put a church on top of it. Again, the connectivity to that higher space of, whether you want to call it closer to God or whatever you want to call it, you know, there does, there is something about that, eh, you know? It's interesting though, James, like, uh, going back to what you said earlier on around, you know, do I view from that, do I view that Māori cultural perspective in any country throughout the world? And you know how I said, yes, I do. But one thing I really, it's almost like when I, when I leave New Zealand, I'm kind of, I've, I've unplugged myself from the main power source, you know? And I'm running on a battery. And the longer I get home, the longer I'm away, the, 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 the flatter that battery becomes. And then when I arrive back home and, and then plug it in like you do into a power socket, then boom, I'm back to my, not, 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 not my personal vitality and energy, but my energy that connects me to everyone and everything. It's very strong when I first get somewhere, but then it, it's slowly like by the time I get home, I'm like, you know, sweet, it's good to get over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can understand that. It's, uh, <laughs> like how, I don't know, like historically, like you were talking about Viking culture, and I think sometimes traditional culture gets kind of used a bit strangely, and so sometimes people aren't, in Britain, for example, you know, the idea of, kind of ancient Celtic culture or kind of British culture kind of gets a bit almost like fetishized and becomes a thing to exclude other people from. And I find yeah. that that's really sad, I think, sometimes. And I kind of wondered, because with, with Māori culture, it feels very welcoming and it feels like whether you are Māori or if you're Pākehā, you, you all take part in that culture in New Zealand and you all care for it and look after it. That kind of connect with with anybody and everybody and, and maybe that's had a part of kind of remaining so important yeah. in new zealand if you were able to go to different countries throughout the world and hang with the indigenous people and see what those rituals involve i think you would find very clearly there's a very common theme in them which is essentially living with the land and the environment as opposed to being separate from it no matter where you went in any country, you you would find that if you were able to to tap back into into that, you know. And the other thing, bro, is I don't know if you know, but I did a TED talk a couple of years ago. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. I'll have to find that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if you just Google my name in under TEDx, you'll it'll come up. I think the the name of it was um, the name of it was our Kiwi Tonga. Where to from here? <laughs> so it speaks to a it speaks to a little bit of this stuff. All right, all right. Too good, bro. 
I'll All catch right, you next time. Soon, For sure, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a blast right. chatting to you. I really, really... Yeah, it was yeah, too, James. It's good. Yeah, absolutely. i got a feeling we'll be seeing each other sooner rather than later. That sounds good to me, man. All right. Too good, All right, man. man. See you later. See you, man. Yeah, incredible guy. Um, yeah, tell me, tell me your thoughts on, on hearing all of that. Well, first of all, that was lovely. It's very inspiring. I completely agree, obviously. Everything we've been talking about in this entire episode, whether it be religious beliefs, whether it be the understanding of the romantics, whether it be the obsession of scientists, is to just be more connected with the world around us, to, to understand it in some form or another, whether that be spiritual or physical. And all this does is make me want to go exploring more. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, when, when you were in New Zealand, because you visited briefly, did you, mm-hmm. did you, is there any particular place you, you felt a, a connection or anything that struck you about it when you were there? Obviously, Milford Sound is pretty impressive. And I was disappointed I didn't get to climb Mount Doom. <laughs> I think that's uh, Narahoe, yeah, which is one of the mountains from the story there. I did really want to go and do that walk, but it takes obviously it's a while to get there, and then you've got to do it all day and then come back. So yeah, didn't I, get I, I walked it. past it. I did. I managed to do two days in the Tongariro National Park, and it is stunning, just incredible. And there's a bit where you're walking across the crater of a volcano. There's, there's crystal lakes, which are incredible colours. There's boulder fields, which are incredible. It's 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 a beautiful place and actually when i when i went to tongariro uh i was hitchhiking around new zealand a bit and the guy who gave me a lift into the park was uh from one of the local maori tribes and he said that he was a guardian of the mountain and that's that him and his people were guardians of the area and that i went with his blessing and he was so kind and he said go with with my blessing look after the place we welcome you here be a part of it with us and that was the most beautiful thing just to feel welcomed in that way to something that is matters so much to people as well really real deep connections with the landscape because they're relatives as as ellis said it's in their genealogy they are part of the same family tree i couldn't really walk from the plane into the airport in queenstown because i was too busy trying to look at the remarkables yeah, I love it. It's a mountain range called The Remarkables. Uh, and, and I stepped off, and obviously you get hit by this wave of heat. The sun is so bright, but it, it, I was just too busy looking at the mountains to so actually like, grab my bag and like get walking off the tiny little uh, airstrip. That's beautiful. It's really, I really enjoyed talking to Ellis. I think he touched on a lot of the things that we've talked about this, this episode as well. He talks about the possible religious significance of mountains and... You know, he was saying about uh, the history of that in Sweden, uh, which is really interesting because that's not even in his own country. It just it's an, his un, his personal understanding of mountains, and he was talking about the relationship with landscape and how that ties in politically as well, which we talked about with China and Kailash and politics and landscape sites like that do matter. And I loved what he said about uh, the indigenous cultures, probably a lot of places in the world have this emphasis on a close relationship with the land and i think that touches on some of the thoughts from the start of this episode editor's note just a quick apology to say that we've had a follow-up email since recording from ellis saying that actually he doesn't go by ellis he goes by terahi now his maori name i hope i've pronounced that correctly as well but apologies for not using that before it's so weird that 
the countryside around Britain is actually really lovely. There are so yeah. many amazing places to visit, and I really want to keep exploring more and not forgetting that to, to kind of look inwards rather than just travel to other places. But it doesn't feel the same. Uh, maybe it's because it's our own backyard, so to speak. But I, I feel like just the everyday life interrupts it a little bit too much. It's only when I really like we took ourselves into the middle of Snowdonia, where you physically can't see anything other than nature. Mm, yeah, that you you can feel it. Um, looming over you, and then then you have no choice but to to interact with it rather than ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you kind of need that in your life at some some points. And yeah, you know, we live quite either in London or close to London, and just getting out and and taking part in nature and and being in a natural area has a really powerful effect i think in a lot of ways and i think we've explored that over the course of this episode it's inspired people scientifically religiously emotionally artistically you know we have our own perspective on what mountains are and i think for me it's the emotional connection but those stories the genealogy everything that's that's really um it's been really interesting learning about different people's connections magnifique So I think just to, to the round it out, so one of the things that I came across when I was doing my research, obviously into mountains, was the seven summits. Uh, so the seven summits are the, the highest mountains on each of the seven continents. And the first person to climb all of them was a man named Richard Bass. Uh, this was on the 30th of April, 1985. So wow. it's not very long ago. And since then, it has been attempted by numerous climbers as one of the greatest mountaineering challenges that you could do. Obviously, the seven second summits is supposedly harder than the seven summits because it includes K2, but yeah, it's just yeah. a fun side fact. There is... Well, Antarctica, anywhere in Antarctica is going to be pretty challenging. Yes. So, there, interestingly, though, there isn't one definitive list of what the top seven is. Right. Because, and there are small variations between a few of the lists, and that's because of how you categorize the continents. Where does the border of uh. Europe end... Is Oceania just Australia, or does it encompass all the surrounding areas? And also, you can choose to look at plate boundaries and tectonic plates, which adds further complexities. Oh, God. But the general list is is the same in almost all of them. It's just a couple of variations. So, obviously, the first one is Mount Everest, which is in Asia, which is 8,848 meters at its summit. How many meters is it again? 8,848 meters above sea level. I believe so. Okay. Its summit peak is the international border between Nepal and China, right over the top. I didn't actually know that, and I've been, I've seen Everest. I didn't know that the, the summit of it was the border. Yeah, apparently the summit of the, of, the, of the peak is the border between Nepal. It's technically between Nepal and Tibet, but obviously Tibet is China uh, at the moment. This is when we see a download come up from Tibet, and then we never get another one. <laughs> um and then I'm going to pronounce this so wrong, but there's uh, the South American one is Aconcagua, uh, which is located in Aconcagua. The... Oh, is that how it's pronounced? Aconcagua. I think so. Okay. I mean, I could be entirely wrong as well. The South American one is uh, Aconcagua, located within the Andes range at 6,960 meters. And this mountain is entirely within Argentina, but is very close to the border with Chile. Uh, the North American one is Denali, which is 6,190 meters and is in Alaska. It was previously known as Mount McKinley for almost 100 years, named after the president, until 2015 when its name was reverted back to Denali, which is the long-used native 
name. No uh, and, this, and that's the name known by the uh, the Koi Yukon people. That's incredible because I've heard of McKinley, but I had I had no idea that that had changed. That's so they so they changed it, so that's why it's Denali. Well, it's like Taranaki is was called Egmont for years. Um, Stupid name. Yeah, it was. I think James Cook, Captain Cook, named it that. But then they changed it back. And actually, did you know that only about two, three years ago, the New Zealand government have granted Mount Taranaki the same rights as a person. Hmm. And it's the same for the Wanganui River because that's... So in law now, they have the same rights as a person. And they're obviously deeply connected to the tribes. And there's a whole lot of stuff going on with that. But really interesting that they're, they are seen equivalent, not just culturally, but in terms of law as well. Sorry. Thank you're, you. You're on no, that's fascinating. Please carry on. Uh, so obviously the fourth one is Mount Kilimanjaro, which is in Africa, 5,895 meters. It's in Tanzania. It's a dormant stratovolcano with three volcanic cores. Everyone's favorite to climb for a charity venture. Uh, and each of these cores has its own name and only one of them is still dormant, which is Kibo. The other two are extinct. And then uh, Antarctica is the Vinson Massive, which is 4,892 metres. It was only discovered in 1958. It was only first climbed in 1966. And as of approximately 2010, maybe only 1,400 people had attempted it. Wow. I want, that's an attempted. I wonder how many people have actually achieved it. I, I think it has a really generally... So I was reading, I was actually looking up trips that you could do to like summit it. They obviously cost a lot. But they have close to a hundred percent success rate through this company. You just have to accept that you're going to be delayed due to weather. But the actual climb is not that bad. It's it's just the conditions that make it harder and the location and how difficult it is to get there. Yeah. Uh, I also thought it was interesting that in geology, a massif is a section of a planet's crust that is demarcated by faults or f- or flexures. In the movement of the crust, a massif tends to retain its internal structure while being displaced as a whole. Uh, the term also refers to a group of mountains formed by such a structure. So yep. I thought it was... I've, yeah, you got like, the Massif Central in France, things like yep, that. Yep, yep. I think it's one of the most famous ones. So then we move on to Mount Elbrus, which is in the Caucasus, and that is within the continent of Europe. This is generally agreed upon by everybody, but you do have to include the Caucasus range and that section of Russia in Europe. Yeah. A guy I went uh, hiking with last year has actually uh, done done the done Elbrus, summited it, went on a trip. Did he enjoy it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he talks about it a lot. <laughs> okay, good. It's uh, so it's at five thousand six hundred forty-two meters, and it's a dormant volcano, obviously in southern Russia near Georgia. I think I think it'd be fascinating. I I didn't know that much about the Caucasus Range, and uh, it's been really enjoyed looking up more about that. I think but, guiding is recommended for it. Oh, I see. So, for the people who didn't count Elbrus, or when they categorized it differently, the alternative was Mont Blanc. Yeah, that was the recognized yeah. one. But now, generally, everybody agrees it's Elbrus. Fair. So, this is when it gets a little bit more complicated. The seventh one is either, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, Kosciuszko. Kosciuszko. Aust- Kosciuszko uh, <laughs> in Australia. So, the seventh one is Kosciuszko in Australia. Or this one, Punkyak uh, Yaya or Jaya, which is in um, Papua New Guinea, I believe. Now that I wouldn't know how to pronounce, I'm afraid. Sorry. The issue is whether you class it as Australia or Oceania. And many people, because these are easier ones to climb, especially the one in Australia, they actually choose to do both just right, to be yeah. completionists. Uh, so some people do eight and they class it as like a, a 
they do eight instead of seven to make sure that however you classify it, they've accomplished it. Yeah. yeah so yeah. they don't get disqualified because of your understanding. Um, and Kosciuszko is part of the Australian Alps in New South Wales. Yes, I've been there. Uh, my favourite mountain names there was I, I quite enjoyed climbing Mount Speculation, and when you summit that, you look out on a lovely view of Mount Buggery. <laughs> Oof. I will, I, will, really, I will say no more. The Australians love it. Say good no name. more, say no more. Not as good as Wink to a fly back. <laughs> Excellent. So just out of interest, what I wanted to know is, of those seven, or eight, or nine, uh, which one most interests you to climb? Well, obviously, let's let's start with, with Everest. It has a huge appeal. I think it's the significance of it, um, which must also have an actual... Nepali name rather than, you know, because Everest is obviously a, a European name given to it, but I'll have to find that out. That does appeal, and I like the idea. That hike, you can only climb it yourself because if you can't make it back down, no one can help you back down as well. It is an ultimate challenge. However, it is very frequently done, and it's actually had a lot of abuse in the mountain. There's a, a lot of talk in Nepal at the moment about the litter that gets left over it. Particularly going up to going up to Everest Base Camp is a, is a popular trek just to do, but the litter all over Everest is apparently appalling, and the damage that's being done to it by the, the volume of people that are going is is quite quite concerning. I think so. I was listening to a podcast about hiking the Appalachian Trail, and the very first few days of that trail, uh, the discussion was all just about how much litter is just discarded throughout the the forest. Let's, I mean, not. That this is not what we're aiming to do, but you know, if you're listening to this, just if you can, when you're out in the mountains, if you see a bit of litter, just pick it up and put it in a you know in a rucksack pocket or something like that. Just do one or two pieces at least that's not yours when you go. And if everybody did that, that'd be beautiful. Pack it in, pack it out. <laughs> Leave nothing but footprints. Take nothing but memories. But besides that, I do really want to go to Alaska. And what's the new name? Denali. Denali, yeah. I think Denali sounds sounds pretty special, actually. That really appeals. It's a really huge national park as well, named after the mountain as well. Yeah, yeah. So then, outside of the ones that we've mentioned, where would be your ideal mountain range to go hiking or climbing in general? I don't know. If somebody, Let's say somebody gave you the money and was like, hey, you know, I want you to book a trip to go walking in the mountains and climbing. Quite possibly the Andes. I think the culture you get in the Andes as well would be really fascinating. We better start saving. Sounds like a plan. Should we do it? Indeed. We'll get back to you when we've uh, when we've done that and let you know how it was. Or not if we die. Um, yeah, yeah. We always mention death at the end of each episode. You're still here, actually, after after uh, the possibility you might not have been after the last one. So that's good. There should be some context to this. It, it was a, it was a joke. Just so that nobody thinks that I had like a severe medical condition and thought I was going to not make another episode, and then. Uh, Get back. You do have a severe medical condition. You're you. Any last thoughts? You're off to Scotland next week. Yeah, I'm off to Scotland on Thursday. I'm going to go and do some mountains. I'm really tempted to go and do Shehalian, actually. I'm very excited for that. It'd just be nice to be out in the mountains again. Uh, it's very timely with this episode. All, all I would say to anybody listening, uh, hey, is there anyone out there? Um, if you live near any mountain ranges or if there's any particular favourite spots that you've traveled to visited that you that have great meaning to you or fascinating stories that you would like to share 
then message us, join us on our social media, and tell us because we genuinely really want to know. Yeah, and I think mountains, the mountains in Scotland aren't massive. So wherever you are, it doesn't matter the size of the mountains. It's just the landscape that, that impacts on you. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you've read any really good books about mountaineering or exploring in general, recommend away. Yeah, obviously we love films as well. Um, there's quite a few classics we thought about discussing some of them. Touching the Void, things like that. Free Solo came out recently. Lots of really interesting films. Um, if there's any others that you think we should look at, let us know. And that will bring us to a close for this week. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've uh, really enjoyed doing it. I certainly have. I've, I've learned a lot. Thank you, Wolf. Yeah, this one's been really fun to uh, research and get ready for. And there are honestly so many topics I didn't include that I really wanted to talk about. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just search The Great Unknown or The Great Unknown Pod. That's us. We'd love to hear from you, your thoughts, any suggestions, any suggestions for future topics. Get involved and let us know. Give us a like, subscribe. We're on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, all good podcast providers. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We look forward to uh, talking at you again.